This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters. My men and my women. And yo, it's time. Put our hands together. Hip hop, hip hop. Because we want to talk about y'all is hip hop. The stories of hip-hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who inside of them the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt, abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better, and ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. So my name is Jamila King. I'm 28 years old, and I currently work as senior editor of Colorlines.com. This first song is a song that I hadn't thought about in years, but it's actually a song uh, by a San Francisco MC named JT the Bigger Figure, but it's from 1994 and it's called Game Recognized Game. This song was part of the soundtrack of my childhood. Um, I grew up in San Francisco in a community called the Fillmore, uh, which is a historically black community. And I remember this song and other MCs in San Francisco specifically, like Mac Maul, like San Quinn. I remember hearing stories about JT the Bigger Figure, who actually was only about 10 years older than me. So he was like my sister's generation. And you know, there were stories of him being hood rich and driving around the hood and his, you know, his gold drop top 5.0. But you know, more than that, this song reminds me of hanging out with my best friend at the time named Michelle. She was my next door neighbor. And she would listen to music. Um, her walls were decorated with Bay Area hip hop posters. And we would hear this song in the streets. It was huge. We would hear this song on the radio. And years later, I, I found out that my sister actually used to battle rap JT the Bigger Figure before he became famous. So this was back in like the late 80s, early 90s. And years later, my sister who passed away when I was really young, she and JT were the same sort of generation, both born, I think, in 1974. And I found this mixtape that she had made. It was from like 1989 and it was her battle rapping JT the Bigger Figure. And I was like, oh snap, this is, this is some history right here. I actually looked at the video recently and it's really intense to see the video because it's so like San Francisco Fillmore in the 90s and San Francisco is a city that's drastically changed. It's a city that's been heavily gentrified. There's uh, a scene in the video where JT kind of 
goes in and, and robs this record store on Hay Street. And I remember that record store. That record store was a huge record store in the community and now it is a yoga studio. And every time I walk past it when I'm at home in San Francisco, I think about the fact, oh yeah, this used to be the record store. So it's nostalgic. It's a song that really represents uh, what my childhood was in the Bay Area. It was fun, it was hard, it was beautiful, it was tragic, it was all those things. And you know we gonna wreck it So peep game from a player And check it, check it, check it Cause I'm um... was uh, killed in 1990 and I was four years old. So I was really too young to really know her or her friends. And my mother, because of my sister's death, was very, very protective of me and where I went. And so I wasn't really sort of in the community as much. But nonetheless, my sister's friends were always watching out for me, always sort of like spotting me and saying hi and all these things. And I guess that now it was back in 2008, her best friend at the time reached out to me and was like, I have these things that I wanna give you. They were your sisters. Her best friend was with her on the night that she passed. And she gave me this tape. At first, I didn't really know what to do with it. I didn't have a tape player, <laughs> like, you know, like I had an iPod, I didn't really know what to do with it. But I listened to it and it was really, I don't even know the word to describe it, but it was really jarring to actually hear my sister's voice, you know, and, and not just her voice, because I feel like when you're rapping, like you kind of take on this persona, right? And so I'm imagining this kid who's at the time 14 or 15 years old, she sounded like every other female in C at that time, right? Like it's a, it's a very specific sort of rap that you're doing, a very specific sort of cadence that you have. I don't really know how to describe it, but it wasn't kind of as like smooth and silky as as you know rappers are now it was kind of like choppy but it was it still had that flow making shit up as you go and just seeing the world through that lens i listened to the tape once and i actually haven't listened to it again because it's pretty hard to listen to but it was just crazy to me because i think you know when i was listening to jt the bigger figure when i was eight years old i had no idea that my sister knew him i had no idea that she had battle wrapped him so it was dope it was pretty dope to learn that My family has been in San Francisco and more or less in the Fillmore since the mid-1940s. I grew up in on, on a street called Hazen Central. So I grew up like right across the street from Golden Gate Park, around the corner and up the street from Haight Street. So it was this very sort of weird eccentric neighborhood because it was very much a part of the Fillmore, right? But it was very sort of mixed income. You know, my mom was getting Section 8 at the time and we lived in this, it was a three-story building, but we lived on the top floor of Victorian Flat. And down the block were law professors who had like four story homes. But I remember when I was like 10 years old, there was a group of folks, there were a group of white folks who must have been like teenagers or young adults, and they had gotten lost. They were like so clearly lost and didn't know where they were going. But they were driving down my street as I was walking down the street. And they were like, yo, dude, we got to get the fuck out of here. This is the hood. And then I was like, oh, I didn't realize this was the hood. Okay, that, sure. 
But I remember having this very distinct feeling of shame, right? Like this, this feeling of like, I live in a place that's unwanted. I live in a place that's not as nice as other places in the places in the city. It's not Pacific Heights. It's not North Beach. We don't often own our homes, right? Our families do have this these tragic legacies, right, of folks on drugs or folks being killed. So when I was 10 years old, which was in the mid 90s, that's around the time that a lot of this gentrification started to happen. So how I saw it and how I felt it was, you know, you'd see coffee shops sort of pop up. You'd see a lot of families moving. I, I remember around that same time, my landlord stopped accepting Section 8 vouchers, which meant that a lot of people in the building had to leave. And luckily my mom, she was a bus driver, so she was making a decent income, a good income and benefits, and so she was able to stay, but a lot of folks weren't. And so, you know, rents steadily started to rise and folks, folks I'd known and grown up with had to leave. Reminisce back when I was only a child back in the days of living carefree lifestyles well long as we wasn't caught being bad was cool and we was never at a loss for something to get into chilling in the neighborhood down at the park sunny days when we played at the old school yard where kicking it live was a familiar scene Kenny M and Big Gene know what I mean but nowadays it seemed like just ain't the same Everybody it's really weird I still go back because my mom still lives in the same home I still go back to the neighborhood and it's very strange to feel like a foreigner in your home it's hard because on the one hand, I went from being a child who really, really wanted my community to be beautiful. I wanted there to be nice houses. I wanted there to be beautiful lawns. I wanted there to be nice schools. And we have all that now. You know, the neighborhood looks great. It's just that nobody who was there when I was there is still there to enjoy it. So, you know, there's a, a sense of shame and there's a deep sense of loss. You know, I, I think I, I see that. Um, and I think it relates back to the music because this music reminds me a lot of of the people that I grew up with, right? And so if there were people who were kind of flipping out, right? If you do have a mother who's lost her daughter or you have someone who's drinking too much or someone who is on drugs, there's a sense of shame and guilt, yes, but more than that, it's like you know that person's family, you know what that person has been through, you know that person's struggle or you know, you've heard of it. And instead, you know, now it's a very different dynamic in the neighborhood. For instance, there was a coffee shop in my neighborhood back home that I guess someone broke the glass of the window and the owner came out and he was like, yeah, you know, it's probably those crackheads. And that was really hard to hear, right? Because, you know, who knows who it was, right? But at the same time, it may have been them. And at another time in the neighborhood, you could have easily went and held someone accountable and been like, you know, Mrs. Wallace, your son went and did this to my store. Something needs to be done, right? So there's a tremendous sense of loss, I feel, and a sense of grief over not being welcomed in the place that I'm from. Come on. There is no match for a united America, a determined America. And I My mom has actually spent the majority of her life in this particular neighborhood, and she's lived in our home for well over 30 years at this point. It's hard for her and I can tell it's hard for her, but because I think my mom is so deeply ingrained in the community, she doesn't want to leave. I don't think she can see herself leaving. But I think at the same time, and I think this is something that happens in a lot of communities, because these communities are so beset by poverty and in some cases rage and anger and sadness and tragedy, there's so much weight in a community. And I, I feel like a lot of what I heard people saying when they were leaving my community or communities like it were like, 
we just want to get out. We just want to start over. We just want to to not be around this heaviness, right? To not be in the, the last place that my daughter called home. To not be held hostage by memories of things that you can't have anymore. So I, I think it's really tough, you know? I think it's, it's tough for her. But at the same time, you know, I know that a large part of why she's stayed at that house is because it is the last place that my sister lived. It is the place that she called home. You know, even though everything in the house looks different, I think there's a part of her that's like, if my daughter wanted to come home one day, she knows where to come. And it's her way of, I think, holding on to my sister. So my sister was, from what I understand, an innocent bystander of a shooting. She was killed on, on April 27th, 1990, when um, she was 15 years old. She was two weeks away from her 16th birthday. And I don't remember a lot about her, but I do know that because my mom was a single mom and working a ton, she was the person who kind of raised me from the time that I was very little until the time that I was four years old. She was one of the most popular kids in the neighborhood. She was somebody who everybody loved. I found out later that after she died, there were groups of kids every year who would mark her death by having a huge party. They all got sweatshirts and jackets made with her nickname, which was Thick Game. There have been people who've written stories about her crew of friends and who she was. I have a very complicated relationship with that. Because, you know, I, I grew up for all intents and purposes as an only child. And I think that her death really kind of loomed as a shadow over me my whole childhood, right? It wasn't just that my mom was overprotective. It was that I would go down the street to a friend's house and be like, oh, you know, you're Tanisha's sister. And I'd be like, yeah, I guess, you know. Or yeah, I am. But like, I don't know anything about this girl, right? And it, it was something that was really hard for my mom to talk about. It was really hard for, I think, everybody in my family to talk about, right? Because... She's someone who was bright and vibrant and who died unexpectedly. The person who killed her was never really held accountable. And so there was this huge sense of loss on their part. And I think I grew up with a really funny relationship to the film lore because at the same time that I'm her sister, I very much wanted to be myself. And I didn't really know what that meant. Yeah. Herself. Crack to her own out the back of her home. She smelled the musk of the dusk and the crack of the dawn. We go through episodes too, like attack of the clones. What till we break a bag and you hear the crack of the bones? So the next song is Get By by Talib Kweli. I chose this song because it came out when I was in high school. And I think it's pretty important to mention that because of all the things that I just described, I kind of really drifted away from hip-hop for a really really long time like i went to a, a middle school that was um in a place called the avenues in san francisco and it was predominantly asian and i was into a lot of house music you know I, I got into a lot of electronic music you know this was the late 90s so raves were big and the music out of raves were really big and i just wasn't really moved by hip-hop at the time but i remember this song specifically i i think i heard it when i was in my freshman or sophomore year of high school and it was one of those songs that i just had on repeat I had a really long commute to school. I'd get up at like five o'clock in the morning. And it was actually my favorite time of the day because I could just have my like 
big CD case of CDs with me on the bus and I'd catch the 33 Ashbury from one end of the city to the other. And I went to school in a place called Patrell Hill. And it was just a long time for me to listen to music. And I remember this song being a song that I listened to. I hadn't heard of Kanye West by that point. I hadn't even really heard of Salib Kweli. What I knew about hip hop was very West Coast based. I didn't really know about East Coast hip hop very much. This was the song that kind of brought me to it. I was like, okay, this is this is dope. Like this is something that's speaking to my reality, right? Like speaking to the people that I care about, my community, speaking to the struggles that I'm seeing on the street. And it's a good song, production wise, it's a great song. This song was talking about such intense things, right? Like getting up, it's a struggle to get up, it's a struggle to just go through my day to day. And at the same time, like the beat almost contradicts that, right? It's something that almost turned the idea of struggle on its head, right? It's like, I'm struggling, this shit is hard. At the same time, this shit is hard and so I'm struggling and I'm hustling and I'm gonna do it. And I really like that idea. went to school in um, a place called Patrol Hill, which was right above a place called the Mission District, um, which is clear across San Francisco from where I lived. But my bus stop was actually on Haight Street, and Haight Street is iconic because it's the, you know, it's the place of Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin and all the hippies and Summer of Love and all that. And, you know, when I was going to school, it was totally a tourist area, but, you know, at 5.30 in the morning, there aren't a lot of tourists out. There would be like this sort of layer of fog coming down the street, and so you couldn't really see if the bus was coming or not. There was this guy who reminded me of a lot of the OG hippies, right? There were all these stories of kids who had come down for the Summer of Love to San Francisco, and they loved it, and they got strung out on drugs, and they just stayed. And they aged, and they turned into folks who were just kind of sleeping on the street, and this was their life. So there was a dude who, I don't know if that was his story, but that's sort of the story that I made up for him as I walked past him every day. And I remember he was this very tall, white dude. He must have been like 6'4". At the time, he was like in his 50s or 60s. And he was always wearing this purple top hat with like a purple long coat with like a tail. And he had a guitar that he would carry with him. And sometimes he'd be wearing platform shoes. And he always looked groggy, like he had just woken up or like he had just like finished something like he wasn't completely rested but he had somewhere to go and i remember passing him like almost every day uh, walking down h street to get to my bus stop it was cool though because i got to walk past all the shops and i kind of felt like the city or the street was mine it was like okay like yeah the tourists can come and they can spend their money but this city is mine i know these streets i know these people this walk is mine when the bombs activated and mutilated the leg and arms. The bus took me basically through Haight-Ashbury. And if you go up Haight-Ashbury a little bit, there are all these like really expensive homes. And then it would curve around Market Street, sort of so you could see downtown and you could sort of see the city in the fog. 
and then it would take me through the Castro. And so you have like these big gay flags everywhere. It was really fascinating to me just in terms of who got on the bus when and when they got off, where they got off. And usually I'd get off in the mission um, and it was sort of bustling with a lot of activity at that point. I've taken it since then. I don't think it was that long, but it must have been like 40 minutes at least. So I got to listen to a lot of music and I got to make up a lot of stories about people. pretty deliberately um, across the city. I went through this weird eighth grade thing of just being super depressed and really anti everything I'd known before. I chose to go to International Studies Academy, which was a very, very small school with maybe 500 kids. It was fairly new. It was totally different from anything I'd known. Since the school was sort of in this transition phase from being a charter school to just a regular public school, um, and because it was in between the Mission, which was a predominantly Latino district, and then um, Hunter's Point, which was predominantly African-American. It kind of got just kids from everywhere. I had never really seen that part of the city. I'd never really hung out there. You know, my mom's from the Fillmore. Like, she didn't grow up in the suburbs, right? But she's like, oh, be careful in the Mission, because you know they're dangerous over there. It's like, all right, mom. You know, I think that people have this idea of San Francisco as this liberal, multiracial oasis. And for some people, it is. Like, I definitely have friends who grew up in San Francisco, and that was their experience. They grew up in biracial households, they went to protests to free Mumia and all these things, and they did these very stereotypically San Franciscan things. For me, when I was going to school, I probably went to school with maybe a dozen white people, like total, throughout my entire K-12 experience. So the way that race was performed looked very different, I think, than it might look in other places. That's not to say that like white privilege wasn't being performed, because it definitely was. At my school, there was sort of this hierarchy of even blackness. Mixed girls, if you said that you were mixed, then you were like one of the cute black girls. And there was a lot of tension between Asian communities and specifically Southeast Asian communities and black communities. There would be these fights, right, where you'd have this little like gang of folks at my middle school. They called themselves the real Chinese mafia. They'd be like, okay, well, like, let me meet you at the park at so-and-so. And because, you know, Asian American folks at that time outnumbered the black folks, it was just a, a huge source of contention. But, you know, looking back on it, I just, I see it as we're all like scrambling for a piece of the pie, right? Like we're all scrambling to try and, and be accepted or we're all sort of like pitted against one another, right? There wasn't a huge consciousness that we're going through the same struggles. When I went to high school, I definitely saw a lot more I won't say solidarity, but it was just kind of like, you know, we're off in the same place, let's just kick it.
throughout all this, like I'm, I'm coming out to myself. Like I'm, I'm queer. I'm coming out to myself. I don't know what to make of it, and I have this very distinct memory. I have this, this friend from high school, Mahogany, who we kind of came out to each other at the same time in high school. We were both like 15 or 16, and we came out to each other in the library, and it was like this huge thing. And because you know we were, we weren't outcasts at school. Was, you know we had friends. We had tons of friends, right? But we didn't want them to know like that we were gay. So I remember one day after school, we snuck over to the Castro and we tried to go to this organization in the Castro to just, you know, they, they advertise that this particular organization had groups and support for LGBT youth. And so we were like, oh, cool. And so we went and the first thing someone said to us was like, oh, there's going to be a party tonight, but they don't play hip hop. And, you know, this is me, and I'm listening to Talib Kweli, kind of, but, like, I'm listening to Eiffel 65 and, like, NSYNC and, like, all these random sort of not hip-hop-y things. And that was just, like, whoa, you know, okay, like, the Castro really isn't a place, right? That's my first understanding of, like, being a queer woman of color. Race still very much exists within these queer communities, right? Or racism still very much exists in these queer communities. And I see a lot of parallels between San Francisco and New York, but I think because there's less documented history in San Francisco, I think it's really easy to sort of like, just paint over it as this blanket area of progressive activism where everything is great and everything is equal, and it's not. a small liberal arts school in Southern California called Pitzer College. It's, it's part of what's called the Claremont Consortium, which includes five undergraduate institutions. It was very different from anything I'd known. It was, it was a private school, which meant that it was pretty wealthy. It was in Southern California, which is a place that I hadn't spent any time in. But I went there because I really wanted to go to school with white people. And I know that sounds a little weird, but because I'd gone to public schools all my life, and because I'd gone to predominantly schools of color all my life, I had this idea in my head of, of what a school was supposed to look like, right? A high school was supposed to be, at least on TV, is what I saw was white. And you're supposed to have this really nice lawn and you're supposed to have school buses outside and you're supposed to have a great football team and all these things. And in my mind, I was equating it to privilege, right? Like I, my mom even said at one point, she was like, if you want to go to that white school, that's fine. You'll probably get a good education because, you know, these white kids are going to get an education, so you'll get one too. I felt like I had to prove to myself that I was just as smart as these kids who've gone to private schools all their lives. I grew up in the Bay, so I'm down to earth. I live in L.A., that means I'm down to work. Got a laid-back style, but I like to floss it. Vans and chucks inside my closet. L.A. face with an Oakland booty. That's what my wife got, she don't act snooty. Hey, that's a Bay thing, still come with that A-game. But be on the A-list to see an L.A. chick. Los Angeles, we all can't handle it. Some so I went to Pitzer College. I went there really not knowing quite what to expect. I'd never really been away from home before, and that terrified me. And I remember getting into really bad fights with my mom my senior year over going to this school. But I went, you know, and it's probably one of the best decisions of my life. 
it pushed me so far out of my comfort zone that, you know, I really had to stretch who I was and what I thought. I went to school thinking of success in a certain way. I think I went to school thinking that to be successful, you were something professional, quote unquote, right? Like you were a doctor or a lawyer or this or that. And my ideal was definitely I was going to go to college and then I was going to go to law school and then I was going to practice law. And that was what it meant to be successful. And I think going to Pitzer really helped challenge that. You know, I, I, I met a tremendously supportive group of friends while I was there. And because it was so small and because it was so out of the way um, and it was a residential college, we all got to know each other really well. And I met friends who were so unlike me, right? Like I had friends, white friends whose parents were both doctors and they grew up in Seattle. I had friends who grew up in, in Santa Cruz and friends from the East Coast who grew up in Massachusetts and all these other places. And Going from a place where everyone I met practically in San Francisco was from San Francisco, and not only that, but their family was from San Francisco, it was a great opportunity to really stretch myself and just get to know other people, get to know other histories, and to to kind of open myself up a little more, right? To not be intimidated by what I thought privilege was, or not be intimidated by what I thought success was, right? It really turned So this third song is a song by Louis Logic, who's an artist who I hadn't heard of before. I grew up around music all my life, but I will say that LA is the place where I really began to fall in love with it. And I think there was a specific reason why. I remember I'm listening to this song in addition to songs by folks like People Under the Stairs or MERS or Atmosphere or Brother Ali, you know, all these underground artists. We would spend a lot of time just driving around LA listening to music, and this was one of those songs. It kind of encapsulates my college experience to some degree. I think that it is a song that, you know, is about debauchery, which is certainly part of a college experience. It's about this sort of like youthful recklessness. And I wasn't too debaucherous, I wasn't too reckless, but I, I have this really distinct memory of feeling free, of feeling independence for the first time, right? Like I can go to a show in LA and get home at three o'clock in the morning. I can go somewhere on the weekend. You know, like there was a sense of independence that I hadn't really ever felt before. When I realized my gates were ajar I took the Nestle plunge straight to the tar But never jumped Then I awoke in a pool of puke where I had left my lunch I'm the lush president of the wino section Since you find no lessons in this lonely life It's like Shorty, let me tell you about my only vice I've been at war with Lady Licks And can't find no weapons Or find protection on my coldest nights It's like Shorty, let me tell you about my only vice I was born a big 
friends of mine would we kind of sit around and talk about what is it about LA that makes music so special. You know, just the fact that LA is so spread out and that you have to drive everywhere makes it so that you're going to have an album in your car and you're going to listen to the whole thing and you're going to listen to it in a much more intimate space than you would anywhere else. I just like geek out on different songs and I would like study music, you know. This is where I really, really became sort of like a stereotypical LA hip hop head. And I enjoyed it. Even the first two years when I was having a really hard time, when I was really homesick, when I didn't know if I could cut it in school and I wanted to transfer to a school that was closer to home, music was what sort of got me by and helped me imagine a different life or a different approach to things and and that was really special been at war with Lady Lakes and can't find no weapons or find protection on my coldest nights. It's like, tell you about my only vice. I think I was really drawn to music with a message, music with an overtly political message, whether it was, you know, a political message that was talking about a community or whether it was sort of talking about someone's own internal struggle. It was very important for me because it was a time where my political ideas were really being shaped in college, right? Like I'm, I'm reading uh, W.B. Du Bois, I'm reading France Fanon, and I'm, I'm wanting to listen to, to music that sort of animates that or paints those pictures in my head. Louis Logic is interesting though, because you know there weren't like too many songs by the artists I was listening at the to at the time that were just so like I don't give a fuck. You know the songs that were like I don't give a fuck were the songs that were we be playing at parties, right? It was Lil John, it was Eastside Boys, it was Crunk, it was all this, and I really love those beats. But you know I wasn't that type of kid. Like I wasn't gonna go and go in the middle of a circle and get hyphy or whatever. I'm just much more of a chill person than that. Not that I don't get down with that music, because I do, but I think there was a component of me wanting something that really expressed my political coming of age. In terms of the music itself, though, it, it wasn't just music that was talking about my political reality. It was good music, too. It was art. You know, it was music that was thoughtfully produced and brilliantly executed, in my opinion. I remember listening to Brother Ali, listening to his Shadows on the Sun, and I thought dude was like fucking amazing, you know? Like, I was like, whoa, like, this is how you put words together, right? Like, regardless of what he's saying, like, he knows how to rap. I was up and out my mother's house at 17. Been a grown ass married man ever since. Family reunions I'm talked about but never seen. Cause I learned that some of them can be a nemesis Got a lot of scars on me And I'll tell you the stories If you promise not to take offense Homie, sit back, let hand bring the beat in I'll try to find a place to start to make sense now The first time I was pushed out blind Cold and naked, spanked on the ass to breathe An immigrant from heaven on earth with a work visa I announced myself with gasping screams Before blight and white So I didn't mention my cousin who I grew up with um, His name is Reggie and he's about six months younger than me we grew up like brother and sister but he's had a very different experience than mine right like his has been very much a working class black male experience in terms of he didn't graduate high school he's had a hard time finding a job and actually around the time that I started college he was actually in jail and so when I would 
go home with, you know, my fancy words and my newfound understanding of things and this new music, it was kind of foreign to him. He had a very different and a very real understanding of what racism was, of what racial domination was, of what these systems of oppression were, but I had a lived experience, but the way that I was making sense of it was through this newfound sort of intellectual language or, or understanding that I had. And, you know, like, I remember talking to him about Talib Kweli or talking to him about Brother Ali, and he, he was just like, that shit's corny. You just need to listen to Tupac, you need to listen to, like, Ghostface Killer, like, you know, you need to listen to this real hit shit because this is the real, this is what really speaks to my experience. Just looking at how my experience and his experience seemed so different. I had this understanding of myself as almost like an outsider. And I think I always kind of felt like an outsider because I was queer, because I was kind of dorky. But, you know, especially when it came to having these tools and then using them, right? Like listening to this music, right? And hearing Brother Ali talk about poverty or hearing him talk about being this albino rapper Muslim dude in Minneapolis, right? Like it. It resonated with me on a level of feeling like, I, I get that. I, I don't know what it's like to be him, but I get what it feels like to care passionately about your community, to care passionately about the things that are going on, and to still feel misunderstood. The second time Papa ripped the womb open early and exposed me to the coldness of life prematurely. Where mom's love used to live, now how's denial? And when that decayed, it made it bitter and spiteful. For me and my runaway, we share something special. Rolling to the sunset, could barely touch the pedals. No strings attached, screaming, fuck your pedal. We may live in the gutter, but we cling to each other. A week before my son came, I caught a bad bounce and had to step to mom with my hands out. And mom approved the two of us could so I, I felt like I spent a lot of my time before college running to, uh, running away from who I was, and then a lot of time in my college, in college, running to who I was. But then once I was actually in college with these folks who had a lot of money and had a lot of privilege and had a lot of access to institutions, I started to just to, to realize first of all that that privilege is relative. That yes, there is such thing as white privilege. That like privileges do work out in a very real way, right? The fact that. I have friends who did not have to pay for college or their parents paid for college and they have no debt and they have trust funds. Like that is white privilege, right? But I also met folks who had pretty turbulent home lives, right? Or they had eating disorders or they had their own struggles. And it made me a lot more thankful, I think, for what I had come from. My family didn't have everything, but what I knew at the end of the day was that my mom was always the most supportive person in the world. You know, I had friends whose parents were pressuring them to major in one thing or another, and my mother's advice to me was just do whatever makes you happy. So, you know, I could major in like food studies, you know, and she'd be fine with that. Where I was getting this language to articulate different political realities, I think I was also becoming really grateful for the things that I can't ever articulate, right? Which is a family's love, which is a mother's support, which is sort of this unyielding support and respect for whatever it is I want to do, what whoever it is I want to be. In college, I wanted to figure out a way where I could sort of make sense of the world, to be a part of any change that's happening in my community, and to do what I love. 
For a long time, I thought that meant organizing. I thought that meant being a political organizer in a very traditional sense of doing door knocking and holding, you know, community meetings. And so that that was kind of my path directly after college. I was I was writing a little bit um, and I've always wanted to write professionally. I started writing for a publication called Wiretap Magazine, which is, is no longer around. But at the time it was a publication. It was a youth publication geared toward so-called millennials. It was published by Alternate.org. I really wanted to be a music journalist. That was my goal. I had just read Jeff Chang's Can't Stop, Won't Stop, A History of the Hip Hop Generation. And I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. This is, this is it. I met a woman who is now a close friend and mentor named Christina Rizka. That was an internship in San Francisco, actually, that I started the summer before my senior year in college. And so I was still doing some organizing. I organized through a program called the Movement Activist Apprenticeship Program in the Bay Area, which is based in Oakland. And I organized service workers in Oakland directly after college. And then I moved to New York really briefly after college. I moved to New York the fall after I graduated. I, I didn't quite know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to write. And so I was going to try and start writing for a union newspaper. And that didn't quite work out. <laughs> um, so, so I actually moved back to San Francisco. I lived at home with my mom. And I was still working at Wiretap, making a little bit of money doing it, but not much. I'd, I'd started work as an associate editor there, which was, you know, a great title, but didn't come with a lot. While I was living at home with my mom, I started interning at the San Francisco Bay Guardian, which is uh, one of the weekly papers out there. And I was writing for the calendar section. So the great thing about working at the, the Guardian for a semester was that I was working on the calendar section. It was a really quick turnaround. So... I learned how to write really quickly and really fast and, and write these 100 or 250 word blurbs. And I'd have to turn in six of them twice a week. And it became sort of like a challenge for myself, you know, like I'd start maybe a couple hours before they were due and I would just like bang them out. That took a lot of work, but I eventually got into a rhythm of it. So I think I, I effectively worked through my issues meeting deadlines. That and my, my editor, Christina, was basically like, no one will ever talk to you again if you don't make deadlines. Suckers, liars, give me a shovel. Some writers I know are damn devils. From them I say don't believe the hype. Yo, Chuck, they must be on the pipe, right? Their pens and pads I snatch cause I've had it. I'm not an addict, fiend, if we're static. I see their tape recorder and I grab it. No, you can't have it back, silly rabbit. I'm going to my media assassin, Harry Allen. I gotta ask him. Yo, Harry, you're a writer. Are we that tight? When Wiretap closed in 2010, I started freelancing a little bit for Colorline's uh, magazine, or a magazine at the time. The first pieces that I wrote for Colorline were book reviews. I'd known about Colorline since college, and they were doing exactly what I wanted to do. They were talking about race, they were interviewing activists, and they were doing what I thought was quality journalism, and so I thought, this is great. I started with book reviews, and then I eventually ended up writing a piece on San Francisco gentrification. And I've kind of struggled with the same things that I did when I was uh, just getting into the business, which was just putting so much on a story and just freaking myself out. But I got through it. And that was that was good for me because I, I was able to really conquer a goal. And so I've been working at Colorlines uh, since 2010. I've 
kind of gone through multiple roles. I started as an associate editor, I moved to news editor, I'm now senior editor. So I moved to the East Coast, I moved back to New York. It's my first time spending a significant amount of time away from the West Coast. But you know, I love it. I love what I do. I love that I'm able to talk about race and to write about race and to write about things that are meaningful to me, right? To write about the art that's coming out of, of communities of color that I think really speak to a lot of the political realities. And I think I'm blessed that that is my job, is to talk to really amazing people about their life's work and about what they do. And you know, I learn a ton. I learn a ton every single day. Um, we're a small staff and I do a lot for it. I enjoy it, I really like it. To catch a thief who stole the soul I prayed to keep. Insomniac bad dreams got me losing sleep. I'm dead tired, my mind playing tricks. Deceit, a face in the glass, unable to admit defeat. All that I am, all that I was is history. The past unravel, adding insult to this injury. I'm fighting the battle for the soul of the century. Destiny is everything that I pretend to be. Look, and what I did came back to me eventually. The music played on and told me I was meant to be awake. It's unresolved like everything I had at stake. Illegal activity controls my black symphony. Orchestrated like it happened incidentally. Oh, there I go from a man to a memory. Damn, I wonder if my fan will remember me. I've lost a lot of sleep to dream. Music continues to be a constant in my life, both professionally and personally. I get to write, write about music and listen to music as a way to understand what's going on in the world. One of my beats is sort of this, this big beat of, of youth culture. You know, it basically means everything from the way that youth live to unfortunately the way that they die. Last year, I was doing uh, a lot of reporting out of Chicago on um, Chicago's sort of skyrocketing murder rate, which was, you know, the highest in the country, and it was getting a lot of news and a lot of attention. And it was hard to, to stomach that, both because of where I'm from um, and my own personal history with my sister, but then also I think it's hard to really understand what that means unless you, you understand the context. And I feel like a couple of albums recently that were really important in helping me understand that context were the Roots' album, their last album called Undone. It's the story, the life story told backwards of a young 15-year-old black man who's killed or black boy who's killed. And then there's also Kendrick Lamar's Good Kid, Mad City. And I know a lot of people have been talking about it, but I, I finally actually got to listen to that. I guess it was like last Christmas or last Thanksgiving, one of those. And I was home and I was I was going to my partner's house in Santa Cruz and I actually listened to the whole album, which I think is how it's meant to be listened to. Bro, we can go back right now, my nigga. Like, nigga, I don't give a fuck, my nigga. We can go back right now. Fuck, I'm tired of this shit. I'm tired of fucking running. I'm tired of this shit. My brother, homie. Tired of running. has a way of 
telling stories that politics can't, that essays can't, that individual people even can't tell. What I really appreciated about the way that those storytellers told their story was that, you know, they really tried to assume the role of people being affected by things in this community, right? They were assuming the role of young black men and they weren't assuming it from a place of the gangster rap that JT the bigger figure represented. They weren't assuming it from sort of the elder statesman. They were assuming it as, as a participant, someone participating in this culture, someone participating in this community, someone who's participating in both living and dying along with all the other people who are, who are experiencing the same sort of epidemic. From my reporting, I read a ton of books, I read reports, I see census data, I do all that, but I always like to listen to an album or an artist who I think can help me broaden my lens on a particular topic. And you know, Kendrick Lamar and The Roots were folks who helped me with that reporting challenge in Chicago. And I, I hope that comes through in my writing. I hope that, you know, I, I try not to assume um, a place of authority on things and it's often and this is something that's very frustrating with my editors is that it's it's hard for me to come to conclusions because I feel like stories are constantly in motion and I think that you see that best in the music right like you see that best in terms of people using albums or using trilogies or using their music to really communicate the fact that no one has an answer for what's going on but what we can do is we can tell you the story of what's happening my sex slave, uh, money, pussy, and greed, what's my next crave? Whatever it is, no, it's my next grave. Uh, tired of running, tired of running, tired of tumbling, tired of running, uh, tired of tumbling. Back was my mama say, see a pastor, give me a promise. What if today was the rapture and you completely tarnished? The truth has set you free, so to me, be completely honest. You dying of thirst, you dying of thirst. So hop in that water and pray that it works. Hip-hop matters because, you know, I think black life matters, but also because it's the story of our generations. I, I think it's, it's the music, it's sort of a collection of the music that's come before it, and it's the catalog of what's happening in our communities, whether it's the stories of how people live, why they live, where they live, where they die, what happens after they die. I, I think hip-hop really is the soundtrack to to our lives, to what we're doing, to what we're failing to do, and to what we can do better. Game, 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 game.